Hi everyone, welcome back to The Creative Process. Today, Mia Funk interviews award-winning and best-selling author Dolan Perkins Valdez. Dolan Perkins Valdez is a New York Times best-selling author of Wench and Bomb. She was a finalist for two NAACP Image Awards and the Hurston Wright Legacy Award for Fiction, and she was awarded the first novelist award by the Black Caucus of the American Library Association. She currently lives in Washington, D.C. with her family and teaches at American University. Today, Mia Fung talks to her about her latest novel, Take My Hand, along with the importance of family, legacy, and history, particularly in regards to race. Without further ado, let's pop right in. Dolan Perkins Valdez, welcome to The Creative Process. Thank you for having me. So you've just come up with your book, uh, Take My Hand. I believe you're going to read a passage first. Absolutely. When I drove up, at first I assumed that the Williams sisters lived in the neat brick rambler with the two pickup trucks parked out front. A thick cloud of dust swirled around my mama's little car, and when it cleared, I spied two little white boys standing on the house porch. I rolled my window all the way down, hoping they'd see my uniform. I'm looking for the Williams family. I was positive I had read the number on the mailbox correctly. One of them pointed behind the house, and I understood. I wound the car around the pickups, following the skin outline of tire tracks. The pinto pushed through the ruts, bouncing so hard I was afraid I'd hit my head on the roof. I prayed I wouldn't get stuck. The last thing I wanted was to have to walk back down to that house and ask those boys to go get their daddy. Fortunately, it hadn't rained in a while, and the ground was dry. The trees cleared and the land swelled up into a hill. At the top sat a cabin. The car sputtered, but I tapped the gas pedal and somehow made it to the top. Everything leveled out, and the tire tracks disappeared into brush. Off to my left, I could see a wide field of green stalks. I didn't know a thing about farming, but anybody with eyes could tell that was wheat growing out there. Cows grazed in a lot beside the barn. A lone chicken peeked up at me as it stepped through knee-high grass. Up close, the structure was more of a wooden shanty than a cabin, and it looked tired as though a wind had blown it askew and it hadn't had the energy to right itself. A skinny black dog scratched his back in the dirt. In the rearview mirror, I could see my lips were dry. I licked them and my cracked bottom lip scratched my tongue. I got out of the car and stepped in a huddle of gnats. The air smelled of burning wood. Something told me these girls couldn't be in school. If they were, they didn't go every day. They should have been expecting me, but they didn't have a phone, and I wasn't confident they even knew about our appointment. A girl wearing grubby pants and an orange t-shirt shaded her eyes with her hand. The backlight of the sun darkened her face. How you doing? I'm Sybil Townsend from the Family Planning Clinic. It didn't make sense for us to be out here in our uniforms, but Miss Seeger insisted. It was Marge chilly, and I had left my sweater in the car. The wind reached my neck. I stepped up closer. Someone had tried to braid the girl's hair, but the roots were so matted with dirt that only the ends of the hair could be plaited. I clutched the file under my arm and tried to remember what I'd read. Are you India? The dog rubbed against my leg, and I fought an urge to push the animal off. It sidled away. I looked down, and sure enough, it had left a brown mark on my pantyhose. She don't talk. I jumped. I hadn't seen the other girl standing inside the screen door. I remembered the contents of the file. The younger sister was mute. I had skimmed that detail, but it came back to me now. I blinked as I pieced together their story in my head. Mace Williams' father, 33, milk cows, tilled the land, did whatever the white man told him to do in exchange for this shanty and a piece of money. 
Constance Williams, mother deceased, Patricia Williams, grandmother, 62. In the distance, the inky outline of grazing cows flickered in the light. Your grandmama here? Grandma, the nurse here? I tried to smile, but I wasn't sure if my expression passed for polite. I didn't know whether I should ask to come inside or if I should wait for the grandmother to come out. The older sister settled it. I remembered now that her name was Erica. You can come in if you want. She opened the door for me. The screen pulled away from the edge of the wooden frame, not much protection against the flies. It creaked on its hinges. I'm not sure if I said this before, but walking into that house changed my life. And yes, it changed theirs too. I walked right up in there with my file and bag of medicine ready to save somebody. Little old me, five foot five inches of know-it-all. I love that line, five and five inches of know-it-all. What you do so well, I think, you know, there's fact and there's truth. And we hear a lot of statistics and these things and we become numb. But you bring us into the truth and we feel it and we're right there. So you help us not be numbed. So I'm wondering, what was your way in and why did you choose to tell this story as fiction? Well, I'm always looking for silences in the archive. I feel like the whole historians have to deal with the material that they find. But the gift of being a fiction writer is that I get to speak to those silences. And I think African-American historical archives are particularly rich for fiction writers because there are so many silences. And so I went into this just researching a little bit about the Ralph sisters, but I found myself wanting to know more about the nurses who worked at that clinic. And I couldn't find really anything about them. You don't take liberties, but yes, you fill in the picture. So how did you reach a proximity? Well, I definitely take liberties. My girls in my book are 11 and 13. The Ralph sisters in real life were 12 and 14 years old. I wanted to make my girls a little bit younger to emphasize that these were children who were sterilized without their family's consent. I also began to imagine what it would have been like to be a nurse working at the clinic. I never found anything in the archive about those nurses. I don't know their names. I don't know anything about them. I also never interviewed the real life sisters. So there are a lot of things that I don't know about them. And I just made them up. I know that one of them had a disability, and but I don't know exactly what that disability was. My girl, India Williams, in my book, doesn't speak. So that's the disability I chose to give her, which I thought would further emphasize her vulnerability. She can't really articulate how she feels. Her sister does it for her a lot of times, but that is part of why being Black and disabled and poor was why they were taken advantage of. So I took some liberties. Also, the, the actual court case that was fought on their behalf was fought in Washington, D.C. I thought it was important to keep my court case in Montgomery so that this story would work better. And you live in D.C. now? And just tell me, I'm curious about what were you like as a child? Because you're riding into these young lives and you have to relive your own. Yes. Well, I grew up in Memphis, so I'm a Southerner by birth and by culture for sure. Um, Born and raised in Memphis, Tennessee. And I grew up in a family not unlike Sybil's family, a middle-class Black family, professional family. I grew up in the bosom of a middle-class community in Memphis. And so I think there's a lot of me in her. I was sort of young at her age, 22-year-old do-gooder who thought I could change the world and who had to learn a few lessons first. And that's the case for Sybil, that she's got to learn a few lessons. So a lot of my background, I also 
Even though I've never lived in Alabama, my daddy went to Tuskegee. He graduated from Tuskegee in the late 1960s. That's the same college Civil goes to. And so I have always had a connection to Alabama in that way. And I've always asked my daddy a lot of questions about what it was like to go to college there and what it was like to be in the shadow of the voting rights movement and the civil rights movement while he was a young college student. So there were a lot of things for my life that I was able to draw on and for my family that I was able to draw on for this book. In your book, the narrator and the protagonist, Civil, is mainly speaking to the audience of their foster child, Anne. She talks a lot about the case that happened with the children, the injections that ended up hindering their health, and doesn't really spare much when it comes to detail. She says everything. Just wondering, how is it that you wrote the narrator as someone who manages to be so honest and so vivid with their storytelling despite speaking to their child? That's a really good question. I think in the South, there's a lot of hierarchy between elders and young people. And more so than, you know, maybe in other parts of the U.S. So I think it's remarkable that she's telling Anne this story, her daughter, as you mentioned in your question. A lot of times when I wanted to know things about my family and my parents' lives, I had to ask. I had to ask my grandparents. I had to sort of bug them and ask over and over again. So I think it's remarkable that Sybil is sharing this without Anne having asked. And some people ask me if she's asking her daughter for some kind of forgiveness or absolution. But, you know, my answer to that is no, I think she's passing along her wisdom, which is, I think, also very common in that elder culture. You don't really ask your children for forgiveness. You don't look to them for that kind of thing. But what you do do occasionally is you pass along your wisdom, your knowledge. Sybil was 22, 23 years old when this happened. And that that's the age of her daughter now. And she believes that it's time to share what happened so that her daughter doesn't make some of the mistakes that she made. And you talk about silences and there is that kind of code of silence for previous generations. We're just supposed to kind of fill in the gaps. And it's interesting that as you said, you didn't interview the actual Ralph sisters, but I think that there's so much, it's almost like a telepathic thing. You can sometimes maybe get even closer. I don't know. I don't know how that works for you. I think that's definitely possible for the intuitive writer. I'm an intuitive writer. And one of the things, for example, in the book, this literally just happened. The real lawyer who argued the case, a man by the name of Joseph Levin, and he's still alive. And, you know, I talked to him when I was researching. In my book, Lou is the lawyer. And later in life, Lou, when Sybil visits him, he has become a vegetarian and they go to eat and he says, oh, I'm a vegetarian now. And she laughs because she remembers when he was a young man and he was eating junk food every day. Well, recently, Joe Levin, the actual lawyer who's still alive and who's a wonderful resource, his daughter came to my book signing here in D.C. And she said, you know, my dad is a vegetarian now. And I said, oh my goodness, I didn't know that. I never asked Joe that. He never shared that with me. And when he read the book, he probably thought I knew, but I didn't. <laughs> so there's all of these things that can just be very serendipitous when you are researching, when you are really steeped in it. My good friend, Eugenia Kim, who's a writer, author of a book called The Calligrapher's Daughter, said that her parents were from a little village, which is now part of North Korea. And she Describe that village in her first novel based on the things that her grandmother or mother told her just as well as she could. And then one day, these satellite images became available in the area where her parents lived and her grandparents. 
and they looked exactly like she described them. She had never seen them. So I think there's really an intuition that can come for historical fiction writers where we actually can conjure something that is as real as it ever was. It's kind of the music of our history. I'm, I'm thinking about genes because I'm also going to talk about eugenics. <laughs> What's passed on and what you know without knowing. It, it is so mysterious. And I guess that's why you write histories. Tell me why you're drawn to writing histories. Although this is more recent than most of your books. Well, you know, when I first started out, I didn't think I was going to claim that title as a historical fiction writer. I thought I'm going to just write whatever I want. I don't want to be pigeonholed. But I really like the library. I found myself going back to the library over and over again. I really like talking to archivists. I like traveling to go visit in an archive. I like putting on the little white gloves and having them hand me a box. And I open the box and I don't know what I'm going to find in there. I'm just going through it. So there's something about the research that I really love. Somebody was asking me recently, like, how do you do your research? And I said, well, besides going through a lot of archives, besides going through newspapers, I do a lot of cold calling. I call people and that used to be scary, but now I'm sort of used to it. People do call me back. People are nice. People want to share their knowledge. So I really love the sort of sleuthing aspect of it. I love the maps room at the Library of Congress. I go in there and I look at old maps to try to imagine what the place would have looked like. That's I just keep going back to it. And so now I fully embrace this title of historical fiction writer because it's where my passion is. And, and it has always been my passion. I just didn't always recognize it. And again, there are a lot of gaps in our actual histories that I think it's wonderful that can be filled with fictional histories to help us understand and fill those absences. Okay, we're going to talk about the big elephant in the room. Systemic racism in medical institutions. That is the main topic of your book. And it's so very important. It's a trend that people are talking about a lot lately, especially since 2020, when the Black Lives Movement was revitalized again. So the question for this would be, what made you interested in this topic in the first place? And how much research did you do going into the book? That's a really good question. Like I said earlier, my dad graduated from Tuskegee, and he often told me about the T Tuskegee syphilis experiment. And when I was growing up, he told me, you know, these two two big stories about Tuskegee. One were the Tuskegee Airmen and then the Tuskegee Syphilis Experiment. He really wanted me to understand the history, not only of medical experimentation, but more specifically medical experimentation in the state of Alabama. I began to read at one point about J. Marion Sims, a doctor who's considered by many to be the father of modern gynecology, but who operated, who developed his procedures on the bodies of enslaved Black women. He often would operate on them outdoors in public for people to watch. And he would develop these very, very painful techniques like a vaginal fistula without giving the women any pain medication. And I wanted to speak the, the names of those women, you know, Lucy Zimmerman, Betsy Harris, Anarka Westcott, who I believe, if anything, are the mothers of modern gynecology because they sacrifice their body. So my feeling about medical experimentation is that there's a long, deep history in this country of uh, medical experimentation on Black bodies, particularly based behind this racist notion that Black people don't feel pain in the same way. And so I've always sort of known that. But once I started to research this book, I began to really understand more specifically what it has meant for Black women. And I remember with an early draft, uh, one of my readers read it and she said, this is the Tuskegee syphilis 
experiment book for Black women. This is sort of the equivalent of that because in my book, the girls are being given Depel Provera shots for birth control, which at this point in 1973 is still considered, it's not approved by the FDA, it's still considered an experimental drug. So, you know, that's sort of how I started to dive into that. Yeah, speaking about enslavers and enslaved people, and that's also the subject of Wench, well, a particular group of people in Wench. I'm wondering about the whole arc of your fiction. What areas of history are you following? Well, I thought I wrote my first book was set in the 1850s. My second book was set in the 1860s, late 1860s. And I thought I would then go to the 1880s, 1890s, just to sort of continue the sequence. But as you may know, the late 1880s, 1890s are considered the nadir of African-American experience because it coincides with the end of Reconstruction, the rise of the Ku Klux Klan, the, you know, the rise of lynching. So I couldn't find my way into that period emotionally. And so I was just sort of wandering around, not really think, knowing what I would do next. And I somehow found myself thinking about this story that happened in 1973. And I did not think it was a historical novel at first. I thought, okay, I guess I'm writing a contemporary novel. And then my daughter said, oh, you mean way back in the 1900s? And I said, yeah. And so she really forced me to realize with her youthful perspective that the 1973 was actually a moment that I needed to research and be careful about. That's the, that's the thing. I needed to actually do some research about this period to really make it come to life. Yeah, it's hard to believe that the 70s is considered history. I I remember part of the 70s. But yeah, so what were the research that you had to do on yourself? Well, you know, one thing was there's a lot of music in the book. And I have a book club kit coming out that has a playlist of all of the music that's in the book. There's a lot of just references to things around Montgomery. I had to really get to know the city. It was not the city then that it is now. It was a much smaller city. I had to look at maps. I had to look at where everything was in proximity. And, you know, with historical fiction, there are little things that you don't even realize when you're reading a book, how much research we had to do. Like there's a moment where Sybil takes the girls to Kmart to go shopping. And I found, I had to make sure that it was a brand new Kmart. I had to know what it looked like. I found some pictures of the Kmart. I thought about my own experiences as Kmart growing up. Most of the young people don't know about Kmart. They only know about, you know, Target and Walmart. When I was growing up, we went to Kmart all the time. There was a food court. There were a couple of little rides in there kids could get on. And, and in the book, India gets on the horsey ride in Kmart. It was a big deal for Montgomery to get this Kmart. It was a 100,000 square foot store. So there are a lot of things that people don't even realize that. And also just the way people talk. I listened because even though I'm from Tennessee, Tennessee and Alabama talk a little bit differently where, you know, where I'm from is considered the Mid-South. Montgomery is considered more of the Deep South. So I listened to recordings of people talking so that I could get a little bit of the rhythm. It's not perfect, I'm sure. But I tried to get a little bit of the rhythm of words that Alabamans use, things they might have said. A lot of things that don't even end up in the bulky research. But there are a lot of little things with a book like 1973 that that go into it that you don't even think about. In terms of your own voice, you speak about music. And obviously that's an influence on your voice and the role of faith. I don't know your exact religious upbringing. Well, I grew up in the church. I'm from Memphis and, you know, my grandfather was a preacher. I have like three uncles who were preachers. We were regular churchgoers. I still, when I go home to visit, I'm expected to go to church with my mom. I really use that to think about 
Sybil's family and their church experience and how they aren't as religious as my family. But even if you're not religious, even if you don't go to church, you know, religion is sort of woven into the culture and the fabric of Southern society. And so for Sybil, part of her desire to do good is woven into the tapestry of her faith. And I understood that that was important. And it's also woven into some of her shame too. But I didn't want church culture to take over. But instead, I sort of pointed it to church culture as not only a moral framework for civil, but also a framework for Black middle-class aspirations. So a lot of the civil rights movement had been filtered through the church. And so there were a lot of families who knew each other through their church community, et cetera. This is sort of a silly question, but the name Sybil. Okay, I feel like that's a very on-the-nose name, but I have to ask, why that name? Why that name in the 70s? Was it a common name? Just like what brought about you to name the main character Sybil? And then also just have them working in like a government uh, institution. I thought that was the perfect name for her. She's born in 1951 at a time when Black families in the South really aspired to a more civil society. It embodies like the hopes that her father has for her to make a change in the world. You know, he tells her when they go see Martin Luther King Jr. speak, he says, you see these people, you've got to make your place among them. So it's really important to her that she do something that benefits her people. She goes to work in that clinic because she believes it's going to be to the benefit of Black women. So I think it's a beautiful name. I also thought about how Black people have always used naming as a form of resistance and as a form of politics. Some people don't know that, that when you encounter an unusual Black name, you're not just encountering something that was thoughtlessly given. You know, we put a lot of thought into how we name our kids and how we resist mainstream names in a lot of ways when we name our children. Yes. And the names are beautiful. They're all so unique. It seems like in many cultures, there's so many versions of the same name and then your own naming process for you have a daughter. Yes. You mean for my two daughters? Yes. Well, yeah. So my, one of my daughters is named after her grandmother and my other daughter, I just wanted an E name. <laughs> And, and she's Amelia, but spelled with an E. So I have two E names for daughters. My own name, uh, I'm named after my grandmother. So we have sort of a tradition in our family of naming after different people in the family. And I'm named after my grandmother, Dolan, whose mother was very close to an Irish woman who worked with an Irish woman. And that Irish woman's last name was Dolan. And when she had her daughter, she named her Dolan. And I think my name speaks to the sort of the, the intimate history between Blacks and Irish Americans in this country. And so, you know, I say someday I'm going to research and find out who that woman was who had such an impact on my great-grandmother's life. So there's ways in which I think in fiction, names really matter. I do think that of all the names I've ever given to a character, the civil name is the one that has the most importance. And I think we see, you know, my two previous novels were set in the 1800s and often Black people had a difficult time even naming their children because even if you named your child a certain thing, your enslaver might call you something else. Oh, well, I'm going to call you Sarah. But by the 1970s, we have really taken that power back. And there's even a moment in the book where Sybil's father says, do you know why we named you Sybil? You said there's some areas of your own family's history that you don't know. How far back have you been able to trace? 
I will say I'm much more interested in other people's family histories than I am my own. I haven't done a lot of tracing of my family history, but there's always a generation that does that. So my teenager is just got her ancestry kit and swabbed and sent it off recently. And she's always on those ancestry websites digging up things. So I feel like my daughter's generation, she will be the one to to go back and and trace a lot of my family ancestry. But I feel I'm much more interested in other other people's stories. I love intricate family histories, but I probably need to do mine while we still have a lot of our elders alive. I probably need to do that. It sounds like she's a, a young historian in the making. In, in going back to this systemic racism in institutions, of course, it you know, that didn't end in 1973. It just changes shape. I just had an interview the other day about lead poisoning, you know, in water and in paints and how that disproportionately affects um, Black communities. And so it really helps, you know, remind us. What are your broader, I don't know if you think of yourself as an activist, but it makes us think about these things. And what would you like us to pay attention to? going forward? Well, you know, I did ask this question a lot because I think our world is now really surrounded by social justice activism and it's become so much a part of our vocabulary. But when I first started writing, you know, social justice had not really risen as a concept as powerfully as it has now. Always hesitated to think of myself as an activist because I... While I think literature is very, very powerful, and I think we know that because they try to ban books, if they weren't powerful, they wouldn't be doing that. I also don't overly value the power of literature to change things. I think what literature has the power to do is to create and foment conversations around things. Whether or not you can actually change policies, I don't know. Now, I did say this at a reading the other night in Seattle. A member of the audience came up to me after I answered this question and said, well, I'm a state legislator and I can tell you that there's power in what you've just shared tonight. And I was like, wow, you know, that was a wonderful moment to think that maybe, just maybe. But I say that to say that I recognize uh, the limitations of literature, but at the same time, I'm hopeful that there are these discussions that will be stirred. And so I hope that the discussions in book clubs, if book clubs pick this book, hopefully some, a few will, I hope that they will think about how our reproductive rights are are not something that we should take for granted, that we should think about how the most vulnerable members of our society are at risk and that some of the rights that those of us with resources take for granted are not necessarily the same for people who are vulnerable and at risk in our society. And I hope that it also stirs discussions about how we help, right? So do, you know, what are our responsibilities as people who want to make change in the world? And I think one of the things I hope people think about is how we need to listen and how we need to, it needs to be a conversation, you know, a sort of not a unidirectional, but a multidirectional conversation so that everyone has a say in, in what's, what's best for us. And, and that's one of the things that Sybil has to learn in the book, that she stops listening at some point. I mean, she just goes off on her own and starts just doing things, thinking, she, you know, in her mind. And to the average reader, you would think, you know, she's doing pretty good for this family. I mean, she gets them out of that place, et cetera. But there's a line that we have to be careful about because people have the right to agency and to self-definition and to own desires and ambitions they have the right to that and that may not align with our desires for them
Hi everyone, my name is Lauren. I'm currently a sophomore going on racing junior majoring in English with the creative writing track at New York University. I'm a writer of many genres and also a content creator on my YouTube channel at the Creative Lauren Chi in case anyone is interested. But that being said, I have a vested interest in culture and storytelling. And I found that interesting the way that Dolan Perkins Valdez talks about her own creative process and also how she thinks stories are valuable in today's society. On the topic of her creative process, I found it interesting how she is very experiential with the way that she goes about writing her stories. She listens to recordings to get the accents and phonetic sounds right of the characters that she writes down. She visits museums and just historical like landmarks, which help get her creative juices flowing. She visits archives, all of which like help her further immerse herself into the world in which she is writing, which is typically a historical period. I think that's something I want to take into my own writing, even as a fiction writer. Going about in the world and taking in the sounds and the feelings and just all of the senses when it comes to different spaces within my own community. Not necessarily mean that you have to go to Paris, you have to time travel in order to feel a connection to the thing that it is that you're writing, but something that can help ground you to your piece of work. I think that's something I will take in as I write my own work. So. That was really helpful. What Dylan Perkins says about writing and about storytelling and culture is the way that she says that literature in itself is not inherently political. She doesn't consider herself a political person, but she does find it powerful how literature can create infinite conversations around any topic. So for example, she talks about reproductive rights and just racism in institutions like the medical institution and how everyone should have a say in what is best for ourselves and the society. It shouldn't be a one-sided conversation but something that allows a multitude of voices and opinions to be heard. I find that really important and something I want to include in my own work as well. I want to insert my own voice as a Black, queer, Nigerian-American woman, just because I think it's not necessarily that every piece of work has to have an answer, but in order to even like start a conversation at all, in order to spread knowledge or to spread joy, in order to just have these conversations that help create community, I think it's important that each of us consume works that aren't necessarily just about our own community, are not necessarily like mainstream, and just go into the writer underground and visit your local bookstores, libraries, really get in touch with your own community and with other communities as well so you can grow and become more aware as a person and as a global citizen. I found the segment about literature and conversations especially important because of the recent leak that happened from the Supreme Court in the United States on May 2nd, which states that there was a majority draft vote in favor of overturning Roe v. Wade. They planned on making that decision under wraps while everyone was occupied with literally everything else. For example, there's another strain of COVID going around. College students are currently going through finals right now. There's so much going on in the world with inflation and everything like that. They were basically making this decision under wraps so everyone else was occupied for everything else and ignoring a great number of opinions in this country that declare that women should have their own right to their own bodies and to their own medical privacy. So yeah, I think that relates a lot to this book, Take My Hand, which talks about the invasive act of policing and experimenting on women's bodies without their consent. It just shows how books once again can spark conversations. There's a James Baldwin quote that I have from Giovanni's room that states that, for a woman, I think a man is always a stranger. And there's something awful about being at the mercy of a stranger. I think that's a feeling that's conveyed adeptly in this book and it's a conversation just that adds on to other writers' books. And I just hope that this book take my hand and that this podcast episode helps stir conversations. And down the road, I hope that many generations read and remember this book and the history told through it and the continued fight for women's and reproductive rights. Now, with that being said, <laughs> didn't that heavy um, load be taken off? Let's get back to the interview. 
you're doing this research, you spoke about the magic of it, which I agree. I love libraries. I love archives. And I guess that helps the, the beauty of it, the beauty of language, the things you get lost in. But, you know, how do you deal with the anger too? I channel my anger into the work. So I think, you know, after my first book, Winch, when people would ask me that question, I didn't really know how to answer it because I didn't know what I was doing with the anger, right? I, I was like, I don't know, I'm not angry, I guess. But then when I had that difficulty entering the 1880s and 1890s, which was such a terrible period, I realized, no, I do get really angry and I do have emotions and I do have to deal with my own outrage. And so I would say that my answer to that today would be that I channel it into the work. I just become absolutely convinced and motivated to get the story out there so that more people know this so that it does not happen again. And I think to myself, I have to get this done. I have to get this done. People have to know about this. So I just become sort of like a person on the mission of just getting the book done. And then once I get the book done and it gets out there, I can sort of sit back and then I talk to readers and I kind of experience the emotions again. And so anytime a reader writes me or calls me and says, you know, that they felt you know, a rainbow of emotions or a roller coaster of emotions. I feel that with them at that part. You know, I do. I feel it with them and I get it. Characters in your novels are some, some of them are healers. Who are the healers in your family? Well, my mother is one of five sisters. And I will say that those women collectively are the healers of my family. And they are in different ways. One of the things that I learned early on, because I wondered when I when I knew that I had this artistic side to me, and it's not just writing, like I cook and I crochet and I play piano and, you know, like my happy space is doing crafts and my kids want to go out and play. And I'm like, can't we just stay inside and bake cookies? And my latest thing is like, why don't we make some homemade pasta? You know, and I bought a pasta machine. And so I looked at my family and I said, where did this come from? But I realized that for my mother's generation, being a an artist was not an option, but I realized that they were artists anyway, that they had artistic spirits. So, you know, one of my mother's sisters is a caterer and her husband cooks, but she sets a beautiful table and designs a beautiful party and is just so creative. I mean, she can make a table, just the most beautiful thing with just things around your house. But I have another aunt who, who decorates and who constantly decorates her house with different things. And so all the women in, in my family are artists. And through doing that, they were healers, right? Because they actually couldn't do that as jobs. So the way that they healed the family and the way that they healed themselves and the way that they sort of nurtured us was by feeding us or by, you know, having us over for some kind of fun game night or something that they did. did painting parties where we would all get together and paint. So that was the way that we healed ourselves. And once I realized that, really largely inspired when I was a graduate student by Alice Walker's essay In Search of Our Mother's Gardens, once I began to understand that about my family, I began to understand that this was what created me and that by them sort of keeping the creative spirit alive, through, you know, very difficult years in the South, they had opened the space for me to be able to do this full-time. No, there definitely is an art of living, just taking pleasure in every moment. And I feel it also must serve you, as you say, you're an intuitive writer, you're intuiting yourself into the past, into people that you didn't get a chance to meet, that when you live this kind of artistic life, when you bring the arts into your daily life, then when you sit at the desk, 
it's less effortful. That's what I imagine. Like it just can kind of bubble out of you in a more freer way. Yes, I'm a big believer in the portal. So like there's a portal that's open when I'm writing. And if I go too long, the portal can sort of close. And I think that there are a lot of people, if you're not in touch with your creative side, your portal can be really, really closed and you have to work to open it back up, right? Taking long walks and just listening to your intuition and doing things that are not so linear, right? And so I, I really believe in the creative portal. Now, one of the downsides to that portal being open, when I'm open to sort of receiving and being inspired, et cetera, is that I can be very sensitive. You know, I can, I cry easily. My feelings are hurt easily. I don't have a very high tolerance for stress or I, I don't want to argue with anybody. I just say, okay, I just w- want to walk away. So when my portal is wide open, and it's not always wide open, but if I'm in the deep depths of a project, it's wide open. I have to be very, very careful about being around certain energies because it can really get inside me. And so I, you know, sometimes tell my students, like, protect your portal when it's open, protect yourself. You have to say, no, like if someone invites you to lunch and you know that person is going to weigh on your spirit, you have to say no. And then just reschedule it for a time when the portal is a little more closed. So I do think, I do think in that sort of woo-woo spiritual way about creativity and doing those other creative activities helps me to always keep my portal elastic, right? So even when my portal is not wide open, because I'm doing these other things like cooking and crocheting and knitting, the portal stays like elastic so that when it's time for me to open it, all I have to do is give it a little push. Does that sound weird? No, I'm, you know, I'm an artist and I write, so I know, um, I know it is. So I keep the portal open, but yeah, I, I'm not so good at no, recognizing or keeping the distance. It's not easy to do. And I'll tell you, like, there are some times where I forget to put the guard up sometimes and I go out and it takes me two or three days to recover. You know? And so, you know, I have learned like when I have those two or three days where I'm just like avoiding humanity and trying to like recharge my batteries and recharge my spirit, I realized like that wasn't a good idea. I, I need to make sure I don't do that. Not right now, not while I'm deep in the book. Like once I get, you know, close to publication time and I kind of take a break, then I can do, you know, all those other things. But yeah, it hurts. That's what's interesting. That I think that that gives you that intuition about writing into these histories because you're absorbing it with all your senses and maybe the sixth sense too. I don't really know how that works. I don't, I don't know how it coalesces. Is it always you're taking notes or just kind of like taking it in in different senses? I think so. Like, I feel like, you know, I remember I visited Gettysburg, Pennsylvania when I was researching for my second novel. I drove up there by myself and I went through the tour. I knew. When I just feel when I'm on those trips, those sort of research trips, I feel really like every sense in my body is buzzing and I know I'm noticing everything. I like to do them by myself for that very reason, right? And so I'm noticing everything. I'm taking everything in. It's almost like, you know, I'm sort of in a trance. And a lot of times because I have kids in a family, I'm on like borrowed time. So I have this real acute sense that like, I've got to, I may not be able to get back here. I've got to get it all in right now. 
So when I go in, I'm listening to everything. I'm watching people's reactions. I'm, I have a notebook. I'm taking notes as soon as I get back, maybe not in that moment, but as soon as I get back in my car, I'm writing down what I felt, what I saw, what I experienced. And I honestly think that's like my gift, right? It's like to be able to go into these moments, go into these museums, go into these places and have that world and feel that world. I remember when uh, I went down to Richmond, Virginia once to the Confederate Museum, I was alone and I, I walked in and I had a, some kind of palpable sense of like being a person from that time. And I went and left the museum and I went outside and I sat on the curb and I was, and I just was trying to catch my breath. And I was thinking like, whoa, that was intense, you know? That it was just a very intense experience for me. And I realized like maybe going in there in the same way that I go into other places was not a good idea because I felt myself getting dizzy. I couldn't see, you know, I had sort of a, a real physical response to that, to that museum. And I guess it's like time travel and then you're rushed back to reality and, and it can be disorientating too. <laughs> it's a beautiful place to live in the past too. So how do you Sometimes work with it that? is. Yeah. Well, and like even with 19, like 1973, even though, you know, what happened to those girls was absolutely terrible. It was a lot of fun being in 1973. I mean, and, you know, I'm from the South. I love the South. I had a great childhood. You know, I was alive, you know, when this happened and I had a great childhood. And, you know, what I love was just like the sense of community and the music and, you know, the old cars and what it felt like to sort of listen to the radio. And I mean, people don't listen to the radio like they used to, you know, in the old days, that was all you really listened to in the car. And you would, you know, turn the station and it would be hits and they'd play those hits and they actually DJ back then, you know, and then with the records, you know, and then pulling into the filling station and then getting, you know, full serve gas, you know, I mean, there were just so many different things about it that like listening to the ice cream truck and how how wonderful that was. And knowing the mailman, you know, telling the mailman you were expecting a letter from your Aunt Sue and him coming up and saying, hey, it's here, it's here. I mean, I don't even, you know, know my mailman now. So we're mail person, I should say. So there was a lot to love about 1973 Montgomery, Alabama. And there's one scene where they go to the, they drive down to the beach and she's got beautiful memories of coming down to that beach with her family. So the one hand, and, you know, I always say, like, there's these things that happened in the past that were really, really bad. But on the other hand, yes, people managed to find joy. People were still living their lives. People still smiled. People still fell in love. You know, people still, like, gave birth to a child and felt that beautiful, wonderful thing you feel when you hold your baby for the first time. You know, people still found joy. You just had these forces trying to destroy that joy every chance they got but you still managed to find joy. Otherwise you wouldn't have survived. What you speak of is it was a time that was alive with all the conflict, but alive in a, this might sound nostalgic, but in a more spontaneous way. <laughs> it seems everything is scheduled now. You didn't know about someone before you met them and <laughs> you did it. All these things, everyone has a file and everyone, but uh, I would like to go back to the time in, in some ways. Our childhoods were a little bit more free, maybe dangerous. And so it's, it's interesting even to try and travel that, that brief period back. So I was wondering what now, as you are a mother, what do you tell your children about, about that time, you know, life lessons that are important to you? I think because of technology, it is really hard for my kids to imagine what life was like for me. I mean, even when I talk to my students at 
uh, American, they look at me like I'm crazy. I say, you know, when I was young, there was no call waiting. You know, it would be the phone line would be busy. And if it were an emergency, you could call the operator and ask the operator to interrupt the call. And the operator would come on and say, excuse me, you have an emergency call from your daughter. And then they would hang up to clear the line. And then you would call. Like when I tell them all of these things, you know, they can, they're looking at me like I'm crazy. They cannot imagine. I tell them, you know, I didn't have cable TV. You know, we had like five stations on our TV. And I remember when I was in junior high school, my friend got cable. And she said, you have to get cable. It's the best. And my parents wouldn't get cable. And I was so upset. I felt like I was the last person in the world to get cable. You know, they now have 250 channels or I don't know how many channels there are on cable. Like they don't understand like having five channels, right? And and then of course at nighttime, the channel would go off and then you'd have that like fuzzy white stuff on the TV. They don't, they don't know that. They don't understand that. So I feel like with the rise of technology, it's very, very difficult now, the good thing about technology is they can go on YouTube. A lot of kids know old songs because the streaming services, you can play 80s hits and 90s hits and 70s hits. So the wonderful thing about technology is they do, they are exposed to like old music. They can watch, you know, old movies. They can, they can experience it that way. But in terms of me telling them what everyday life was like, they have no clue. Wow. Yeah, we have we have to work hard to hold on what we want to retain. And, and I'm interested in your broader work. You spoke about your you teach at the American University of Washington, D.C. You're also on the board of the Penn Faulkner Foundation. Can you tell us a little bit about your work there and the reading initiatives? Well, yes, of course. One wonderful thing about Penn Faulkner is not only do we give some of the premier literary awards in the country, the Penn Faulkner Award for Fiction, the Penn Malamud Award for the Short Story, but we also, we also have a Penn, Liter- Penn Faulkner literary champion. Our, our literary champion this year is Oprah Winfrey. We're really excited about that. The reason I got involved with Penn Faulkner, honestly, is because of their Writers in Schools program. And they go into high schools in, in Washington, D.C. and in Baltimore. And at the request of teachers, usually English teachers, and the teachers request that, you know, they're going to read a book by a writer. And Penn Faulkner supplies books at our expense to the class. And then we invite the writer into the class. And so for a lot of the students, this is the first time that they've ever met a writer in person, a living writer, and it's transformative for them. And I I would say like, I remember one time being at a high school and there was a young man who was asleep on his desk the whole time I was talking. And at one point he, he lifts his head up and he looks at the back of the book and he looks at the picture and he looks at me and he looks at the picture and he says, that's you. Like after I'd been talking for 45 minutes and he had slept the whole time, he says, that's you. And I said, yeah, that's me. And he said, oh my God, that's you, you know? And it was wonderful. And he did the whole thing, but he carried, he wanted to talk to me, but it was over. My, my visit was over, but he carried my book bag to my car and he told me everything about his life and, you know, things he enjoyed doing. He was so struck by it. it never occurred to him that a person who was on the cover of a book would be standing before him. And I say that is why I got into Penn Faulkner and Writers in Schools because of that kind of moment. Yeah, it's so important. Young people, are, for everyone, I think, to find the courage to claim their space in an area they have to see, something that's possible, you know? Sometimes it seems intangible. And I guess in closing, I don't, you spoke about the other artists in your life, we've spoken about all these things. So, you know, as you think 
of the future and the kind of world we're leaving the next generation. What are the importance of the arts to you and what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? That is a really good question because the arts have been so important. And the thing is, when we think of the arts, often the literary arts don't get, in my opinion, the recognition it deserves. I think I would like for young people to think about things other than sort of celebrity arts culture and to really embrace the parts of the arts, whether it be music or dance or theater or literature that are quietly doing the work at the ground. So I would say discover writers, discover new writers that everybody's not talking about. Watch independent film, go to community theater, go to, to see a high school dance troupe or a, a hip hop dance troupe that's not, you know, on, on the news. Seek out, seek out local visual artists, local painters. If you see a street painter, stop and talk to the person and ask them, who are their influences and how do they view their art? I love buying street art um, because you can meet the most interesting people depending on the city that you live in. You can't find it everywhere. So I would just say my message is to find the people who are sort of the unsung heroes of the arts, who are toiling, who are who are doing things that aren't necessarily getting them on TV, who don't have 5 million Twitter followers or Instagram followers. Find those hardworking artists and help amplify their voices, but at the same time, just support them. And, you know, and I really hope that our fascination with celebrity culture will start to kind of level out a little bit so that some of these, you know, community artists can, can really regain what I think is the stature that they had before celebrityhood sort of bloomed and blossomed. Yeah, that's that's true. We have to honor our local voices and, and that's what you do so very well in your fiction. So thank you, Dolan Perkins Valdez, for helping us come to terms with the past so that we may understand, come together and heal, and we might recognize and correct the injustices taking place today. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Thank you for inviting me. It's great. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Ian Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Lauren with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interviews producer on this podcast was Lauren. Digital media coordinators are Jacob A. Preissler and Megan Hagenbarth. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Andolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved for a creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.